Welcome to the podcast of Woburn Baptist Church. We hope that you enjoy listening to the sermons and other audio provided by us. Feel free to share what you find here, and we hope that it will be beneficial to you as you seek to know and follow Christ. You know, the thought of dying and death is uh, something that seems to be on the back burner of most people's mind from the time they're small children to the oldest adult. Sometimes we start thinking about it a little bit more when we find out that we're mortal after all. And uh, some nine-year-old children brought up the subject to their Sunday school teacher. So she decided, hey, teaching opportunity, she decided to take advantage of the subject. So she asked them what they thought happened to a person when they died. Keep in mind, this is a Sunday school class. Jimmy said, when you die, they bury you in the ground and your soul goes to heaven. But your body can't go to heaven because it's too crowded up there already. Your body is just going to have to stand in a long line until Jesus finally has time to build you a house. You can see where he may have got some of that idea, some of that theology. Uh, now, uh, Judy said, now the only good people get to go to heaven. I hear that all the old bad people get to go to a real hot place called Florida. <laughs> Johnny jumped in, says, maybe I'll die someday, but I sure hope I don't die on my birthday. Because no, it's no fun to celebrate your birthday if you're dead. <laughs> now finally, Marsha chimed in, but when you die, you don't have to do homework in heaven. Now, there's a positive idea, because none of our teachers are going to be there. <laughs> oh, goodness. You know, there's, uh, I picture this next one from Mayberry. I, I still like to watch Andy Griffith. I still like to watch him from time to time. There were two older women sitting on the front porch one evening, and one was listening to the crickets chirping all around, and the other was listening to the choir practice across the street in the Methodist church, and she turned to the other one and said, isn't that heavenly music? And the other lady says, yes, and I understand they do it by rubbing their legs together. <laughs> you know, two people sitting by, side by side, yet hearing different messages. It could be the same with the Word of God, can't it? Yes. Yeah. But I tell you this, there's a difference between prayerfully studying a passage from the Word of God and just reading it. Or just taking somebody else's word for what it says. Paul told young Timothy, study! We don't like that word. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, who rightly divides the word of truth, or do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. Tonight we're going to look quickly at three topics in the book of Revelation. We've been talking about many different topics already. And these have all been widely interpreted, misinterpreted. And as I've said, every night, there's very few people that get saved when they hear the gospel message preached one time. Some have. The Holy Spirit can do whatever the Holy Spirit wants to do. But most people have had to have several encounters and they need to watch people who claim to be Christians to see, hey, I like that. I've tasted it. It's good. I want more. You know, I've told you, how many times did the Apostle Peter probably have encounters with Christ before he dropped his nets and followed him? You read the Gospels, it's three or four encounters. Good encounters where he's watched Christ. He's seen some things happen. You know, he's seen some miracles. It's possible he was at Cana. He saw the, the, the water turn to wine. And then Jesus stayed at his house and his mother-in-law was healed of a fever. Then he saw the miraculous catch of fish as he was in Peter's boat pushing out from the shore after preaching. And he saw all that. And then later the Lord saw him on the beach and said, drop your nets and come with me. Follow me. And Peter had seen enough. And he followed him. It took several. And sometimes some of these things that you've been hearing this week, I have worked so hard and studied very diligently. And I beg God, don't let me lead your people astray. I've worked for years. I've listened for years. I've grown up in the church and I've listened. And I hear stuff all the time. Isolated passages taken out of context by well-meaning people and preachers and teachers. And it's one of the most dangerous things you can do is to lift a passage out and make it say what you want it to say. 
And I've seen it happen again and again and again. I've seen godly people who can agree on everything from Genesis 2 to the end of Jude. But then whenever it comes to Genesis 1, the creation, and how God's going to end it all, they will fight like cats and dogs. And they'll, they'll just about lose their religion. You know, just disagreeing with this person or that person. The Lord would have us love each other. The Lord would have us study the book from cover to cover. Not lifting isolated passages out. So sometimes we've got to listen. You've got a preconceived notion of how you think, how you've been told, your own personal opinion. You know one of the most dangerous things I hear said in business meetings? I knocked that off. There we go. One of the most dangerous things I've heard said at business meetings is when somebody stands up and says, Well, I think from that on, I just want to tune it out. I don't want to know what you think. I want to know what the Lord's opinion is. I want to know what his opinion is. I've been in churches where the pastor should be wearing a referee shirt, you know, with a whistle. (laughs) It shouldn't have to be that way in God's house. It shouldn't. We should seek the master. We should seek the nature of this God. And he will show us many, many things. You will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. But too many of us aren't willing to do that. We treat it like a buffet. We just take what we want, the passages we're interested in, the topics we're interested in, and we miss the nature of the author. And then we start saying, this is what I think. And then that's where we get messed up. Enough of that. The first we're going to look at this evening is uh, in Revelation chapter 7, the 144,000. Now, this is a vision John describes between Jesus opening the sixth and seventh seals of judgment. And if you remember... And I pray you've been studying and looking. Did they get the sheets? Y'all get the sheets for tonight? They'll help you a little bit. If you've been looking for yourself, you've noticed a striking similarity between the sixth seal, the seventh trumpet, and the seventh bowl of God's wrath. All are final announcements of Christ's return to the earth. Three different perspectives of the same glorious event. Again and again, John is offering hope to the persecuted church in Asia Minor, those seven churches that he is writing this to. He's wanting them to know, hey, God hasn't forgotten you in your suffering. He's going to settle matters someday. He hasn't forgotten you. All right, so let's look at Revelation chapter 6. We've got it up here too. But I want to read this passage from Revelation 6, starting in verse 12. I watched, John writes, as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth. Now, let me tell you something. You look at these things, and you're going, oh my goodness, the stars falling from the sky. One genuine star hitting the earth would obliterate it. Okay? We're talking about some pictures here. He's given us pictures. Remember we said last night, the Lord gave us a lot of pictures in the Old Testament. He gave us uh, the temple, uh, the dwelling place of God. He gave us the sacrificial system, you know, and, and he gave us the Ten Commandments. And what did the Jews do and the Jewish leaders? They fell in love with the pictures. They started living for the pictures and they missed the reality whenever it came. They said, oh, no, we have to keep sacrificing. We have to keep trying to do the law. How is that working for them? All the law was given for was to show us that we needed a Savior, that we couldn't keep it. It was ridiculous. Satan twisted things. They wanted to keep doing that. They wanted to keep doing these things. They fell in love with the pictures, and they missed the real thing. Okay, moving on. The stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll, rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. This is a glorious event. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Unbelievers cannot stand. Lo, every eye shall see him whenever he's come. And the world mourns as they see him because the majority of people have rejected him. 
The majority of people have turned their backs. You can read in Matthew 7 when the Lord again says, hey, the road to destruction is wide and traveled by many. The road to heaven is what? Narrow and traveled by, that gate is entered by very, very few. After this, chapter 7, verse 1, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. And I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. There's the seal. You remember in the Old Testament? In the Old Testament, whenever uh, the plagues fell on Egypt... Now, let's say we have some Jews living right next to Egyptians. What happened to the Egyptians? Whatever the plague was, what happened to the Jew living next door? They were sealed. They were protected. They were God's people. It didn't happen to them. It was a sign to the Egyptians, this is a genuine God. This is the one true God. So once again, this is a picture from the Old Testament. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000. He lists all uh, the 12 sons of Jacob, and we see the, uh, the, uh, the 12,000 from each. Verse 9, and after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes. They were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You know, if you go back to Ezekiel 2, verse 9, you'll also see their seal, a seal that was placed on the righteous to protect them. It was, it was mentioned even in Ezekiel. That seal was mentioned. So these are pictures all, often from the Old Testament that the people would be reading them at that time. They'd be very, very familiar. Believers, they were sealed in their forehead uh, symbolically. Uh, this, you know, the, re the Lord wants us to renew our minds. Remember we talked about the, the mark on the head and on the hand? It's our thought, our actions. Our thoughts and our actions are, are shown by what we do, who we serve. It was a picture, and we've already covered that. Romans 12, 2 says, uh, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the what? Renewing of your mind. You don't think like you used to. You don't act like you used to. Once you become a child of God, you are genuinely changed as the Holy Spirit comes into your life. Amen? Amen. There should be a genuine change. The, the, the seal in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, all believers are sealed with the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives upon placing their faith in Christ. Verse 14 in Ephesians 1 says, it's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possessions. Revelation 14.3 says, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures, before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who have been redeemed from the earth. I wanted us to look, the 144,000 also mentioned, Revelation chapter 14, the Lamb of God and the 144,000 standing together on Mount Zion. Now you see, John hears of 144,000. This is similar to what happened to him back in chapter 5, the previous chapter, concerning Jesus, the only person found worthy to open the seven-sealed scroll and judge the earth. G John heard about the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And it says he turned. Now what's he expecting to see? A lion. And who does he see? A lamb. He heard about a lion, he turned and he saw a lamb. Here he hears about 144,000 and he turns and he sees what? A great multitude from every nation on the earth. I believe this 144,000 is a symbol of the complete number of God's people who are to be redeemed. I'm going to talk about that. Just before the 144,000 are mentioned, John mentions in chapter 6, the souls of those, remember we talked about this last night, under the altar, in heaven, crying for vengeance, for having been martyred. Again, what is the need of a sacrificial altar in heaven? That's not a system that's going to be needed. There are some who say, oh, the temple needs to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. That's going to be a Why do we want to go back to the sacrificial system when Jesus died once and for all? 
Why would the Lord ordain that the temple be rebuilt as a symbol of the sacrificial system to be restored? There's got to be any need of a sacrificial altar in heaven. And, and, and the people in heaven, I don't know about you, but once we get to heaven, we're not going to need to be crying out, Lord, we want vengeance. He's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering. That's not going to be something that's on our mind. It's a picture. In any case, they're told to wait a little longer until the complete number of their fellow servants to be martyred and brought into the kingdom is complete. Then we move into chapter 7, and we see the complete number. Here again is why I believe this number is symbolic and not to be taken literally. First of all, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel lost their identity 3,000 years ago in the exile. The remaining two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they were crushed by the Romans 2,000 years ago. Whenever Israel was demolished, when the Israelites were crushed in AD 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, 1.1 million Jews annihilated. You see, here's the thing. And if you know the scriptures, if you read the scriptures carefully, including the New Testament, God's priority has never been race, but relationship. You understand? Race is not his priority. It's relationship. God made it clear the people from every nation would be among the redeemed. Revelation 7, 9. There is no longer any difference between Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile. There's, the, there's no difference between slave and free, male or female. That is not a passages, Romans 1, 16, Romans 2, 9 and 10, Romans 10, 12, Galatians 3, 28, Colossians 3, 11. All these verify what I'm saying. It's not by the blood of Abraham. Jesus was trying to get that across to the Pharisees. He said, oh, we're, you know, we're guaranteed heaven because we're children of Abraham. We're saying, I can raise up rocks that are children of Abraham. That's not it. He says, in fact, on that great day, whenever we all sit down at the feast, he says, there's going to be people who come from everywhere, from the east and from the west, while the people of the kingdom are going to be left out. Those who think they deserve it are going to be left out. What, the, the, the last will be first? First will be last? No. Paul teaches in Romans 9, 1 and 8, the number 144,000, I believe, represents true Israel. All believers. Jew and Gentile, Romans 9, 1 through 8. Paul says that the Gentiles have been grafted in to the olive tree, which is symbolic of Israel. Represents all God's people. Revelation 21, 12 through 17, the new Jerusalem, if you've read that far, is symbolically built on the foundation of the 12 apostles and is entered through 12 gates inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Its walls are 12 times 12, or 144 cubits thick. The 24 elders, you see, all the, see the, the numbers? The 24 elders in heaven uh, in Revelation 4.4 probably represent the 12 leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel, as well as the 12 apostles who were promised 12 thrones by Christ in Matthew 28.19. The people that are reading this, they would understand that. They would get these things and from the first century church. And it's interesting the 12 thrones promised by Christ, and John is one of them. He's not even there yet. He's, he's not even there yet, humanly speaking. All of these numbers have a symbolic representation to the people of God and would be easily understood within the first century church. And yet we've had people for years that are trying to teach the book of Revelation as if it's literal, and what happens to them? Their minds are scrambled like eggs, and they fight back and forth trying to try to make something out of what they can't figure it out. They just can't. But if we look at it this way, you're going, I can see now. I'm getting a glimpse of what we're talking about. There are some who believe this, this number is to be taken literally, and the 144,000 is exact, and it's made up, as the scripture says here, uh, what John says, strictly of virgin Jewish males who have a visible, visible mark on their forehead. And if that's the case, sorry, no ladies and no Gentiles are among the redeemed. But some want to teach it, that it's, and it's, it is literal. Now, by the way, the virginity or, the, uh, or faithfulness of these saints is meant to stand in contrast to the unfaithfulness of the nation of Israel who prostituted itself with countless other nations, including the Romans. They got in bed with the Romans to rid themselves of Jesus. 
And then like all the other nations that they prostituted themselves with, those nations would eventually turn on them. And what did Rome do in AD 70? Turned on them and annihilated them. Now, in 1884, some of you are going to recognize this, a pastor by the name of Charles Taze Russell, some of you heard that name, he incorporated a group he claimed has always been in existence. At first, they were called Russellites. Then, at the turn of the 20th century, they were called Millennial Donists. Finally, by 1931, they took their present name of Jehovah's Witnesses. Russell wholeheartedly believed that that 144,000 was literal, and it meant him and his group, the total number of Jehovah's Witnesses that would eventually be anointed by God and allowed into heaven. But in 1916, they took stock and they found out they'd shot past the 144,000. They were forced to come up with what some of them call new light. Today, if you invite Jehovah's Witnesses, you feel comfortable enough to do that, and you invite them into their, your home and you ask them some questions, you bring this up, they'll say, well, we're still getting some new light on that. We're not here to argue with you, they'll say. We're not here to debate with you. But on some of these topics you're talking about, we're still getting new light, is what they will tell you. The original number, the first 144,000 on their rolls, they call them the little flock. The little flock will get to go to heaven, while the great cloud is what they call the remainder of the Jehovah's Witnesses that are on their rolls, join an earthly paradise. They get the earthly paradise when the Lord makes the new heaven and the new earth. They get to live here. Now the others get to live in the heavenly paradise with Jesus. The others don't. Uh, our, one of our waitresses at a restaurant in, in uh, Purcell where me and my brother and dad have breakfast sometimes, she's a Jehovah's Witness. She knows who we are. And I asked her one time, so let me, tell, let me ask, uh, are you in the 144,000? She says, oh no, no. I'm in, the, I'm in the great flock. I'm gonna have to live here. And she was sad. I said, what a shame, <laughs> you know, I'm sorry, you know, that's, that's, that's what's, what, how you feel, you know. Uh, listen, a lot of false teaching came out of the 19th century, a lot, including Charles Darwin, evolution, Joseph Smith, Mormonism, Charles Taze Russell, Jehovah's Witnesses, and John Nelson Darby, and the teaching of a secret rapture. We talked about that, went into great detail about that. No preacher would listen to him. And I mentioned some of those, uh, George Whitfield, uh, Charles Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards. None of these men believed in a, in a secret rapture where the Lord's going to take, take the church out just before the Lord returns. The Lord said we were to remain salt and light. And he, would, he says, you are to be my witnesses and going into all the world and, and making disciples, teaching them to observe whatever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always until the end of the age. And in, and in Matthew chapter 13, in, in the parable of the wheat and the tares, he says the angels are sent out whenever, whenever the, the, it's time for the harvest, and he says that is the end of the age. That is whenever we gather the wheat and the tares, and the wheat, or the, the wheat is gathered in, the tares are burned. And it's parable after parable. We saw that. We saw that. And we talked about that already. So I'll be glad to talk with any of you who missed that uh, again later. All right, now I want to look at uh, the two witnesses found in Revelation chapter 11. Remember that John wrote this book using figurative language sprinkled liberally with Old Testament symbolism. He was, a, he was a, an Old Testament scholar by this point in his life. He used a lot of the fantasy imagery from the Old Testament that most of his readers would be well familiar with. They would grasp his meaning. And were the book to fall into the hands of the enemy, what did we say? If it were to fall into the hands of the enemy as it's being sent off to these seven churches, somebody might look at it and they'll go, oh my goodness, poor John. Yes, this guy's been on the Isle of Patmos too long. He's lost his mind. This doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So his intended readers, though, most of them would be familiar with the Old Testament. They'd understand what was going on. I said, this is similar to Jesus switching to parables midway through his teaching instead of playing teaching partway through his ministry. In Matthew 13, the disciples even asked him, why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, listen, the knowledge of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. 
This is also why Jesus frequently concluded his stories with this. He who has ears, let him hear. If you were a true seeker, you might be someone in the crowd who had no education whatsoever. There might be some Pharisees standing around you, highly educated men. And you might be getting exactly what Jesus was saying because you were his intended audience. And the Pharisees are standing there going, it's a nice story. And the guy who's standing there who has no education going, it's talking about them and they don't even know it. <laughs> That's cool. I get it. They don't, you know. That's how the Lord did it. And, it, and it, it lengthened his ministry. He's referring to true seekers of truth. Those who either uh, were seekers or they already had the Holy Spirit and they're within their lives later. Uh, John 16, 13 says, when he, the Holy Spirit comes, he will lead you into all truth. He's going to show you things. He's going to reveal things to you. Revelation 11. Revelation 11. Two witnesses. I was given a reed, like a measuring rod, and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar, and count the worshipers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, and also their, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. The word of God torments people. The truth of the word of God stands in the way of a lot of people's lifestyles, by the way. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. Again, here's another reason why I believe the book of Revelation was written before A.D. 70. Some want to say, oh, it was written in A.D. 90, 95. Uh, but I believe it was written before A.D. 70 in the destruction of Jerusalem. I've given you many reasons. Uh, before the temple, before Jerusalem were destroyed by the Romans. Because in Revelation 21, 22, John claims there is no temple in the new heaven and earth. And I've explained to you why. Because the Lord himself is the temple, it says. Dwelling personally with his people. But in the passage we just read, John refers to the earthly temple as if it still exists. John understood the sacred place the temple held within the hearts of God's people. And the thought of godless people trampling in the outer courts and in, in, on this holy place, uh, he knew it would grieve the people of God. Think about how grieved you are. Every time, we were just talking a few minutes ago about how grieved we are about the state of affairs today with our own government, with the, the, the inability of, of Congress, and maybe, maybe state, many on the state level. They can't get along. They can't agree on anything. Nancy was mentioning it to me today. It doesn't matter. We are, the, the opposite sides are polarized against each other. Somebody from, from one party can say something makes all the sense in the world and present a bill that would solve a problem and just because it's that party, the other party says no. They will cross their arms and vote no every time simply because the other side said it. Even though it, uh, if they met on the street and talked about it, they'd probably say, yeah, that's a good idea. But that's where we are. You're grieved. We're grieved whenever we see that. And we're grieved whenever we see uh, some other bill come down or, or something that is anti-Christian. It just doesn't make any sense. Oh, it's fine for men to use women's rooms. We better not say any different. We don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. Oh, my goodness. 
Listen closely. Much of what John has written to this point is filled with symbolism and intended to encourage the people of God who are facing persecution for their faith in Christ. Horrible persecution. Many feel this passage concerning the two witnesses is no different. It was not intended to be taken literally as two men who walk around blowtorching those who oppose them with their mouths. Radical Muslims kill those who oppose them. Not true Christ-like Christians. God the Father supernaturally protected Jesus until his message was delivered. You know, I shared with you how he was supernaturally protected as an infant. When he was in his most helpless state, how the Lord protected him from Herod. How he provided through the wise men for their travel and their escape to Egypt. How he protected and provided for him in that way. And then when Jesus, early in his ministry, went to Nazareth, his own hometown, and, and tried to reveal himself to them using the book of Isaiah, they took him to the edge of the cliff that the city was built on and tried to throw him off. This was right after he's getting started. And it says he turned and he walked right through the mob and nobody could lay a hand on him. It happened several times in his ministry, if you'll read through the Gospels, where they tried to stone him, where they tried to, to arrest him or kill him before his time. And it says every time, no one could lay a hand on him. The Lord supernaturally protected him. And if you are his servant, he's going to supernaturally protect you until he is through with, you're through with your work here on this earth. Amen? Hallelujah. Radical Muslims are the ones who, who kill. God the Father supernaturally protected Jesus. He demolished every argument. Remember, many times they came with him, they thought he had him trapped with their argument. You know, they thought, I got him this time. I got him this time. He demolished every argument formed against him. Paul wrote, for though we live in the world, listen, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Informed believers know how to be apologists. We don't just say, I think this is what the word says. Or I think, we say, the word of God says. You see what I'm saying? The word says, the Bible says, and we shouldn't just say, since it's somewhere, uh, let, me call my, let me text my preacher. Let me text my Sunday school. You should be able to know. We need to study to show ourselves approved unto God. Revelation 19, verse 11 through 15. John describes a literal future event of Christ and his return to earth. And he closes the description with these words. Out of his mouth came a sharp sword in which to strike down the nations. Now, if you read that whole event in John 19, 11 through 15, it would look pretty strange. It would look pretty strange. The outfit the Lord is wearing, riding the horse and everything, and, and also a, a sword coming out of his mouth. But it's a picture, and the people knew what he was talking about. We know this sword is the truth of the word of God, as it's described in Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active. It's quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Nothing, nothing escapes our Lord. He knows the word of God cuts like a knife. This is our weapon. This is what we use. And according to Ephesians chapter 4, Paul's, we, Paul says, we speak the truth in love. Peter even says, you know, always be prepared to give an answer to those who ask about the hope that you have. But do this with all gentleness and respect. No one has ever been argued into heaven. Love them. Love them. Be as gentle and patient with them as possible. Disarm them. If they're coming at you, disarm them with love. Now, with the two witnesses, John is using Old Testament symbolism to paint a picture of hope. Uh, for, back for a moment, though. With a word, didn't the Lord create? Didn't he speak and everything was? When he comes back, he's going to speak. That's all it's going to take. He's not going to have to shoot arrows or swing a sword. All he has to do is speak truth. And evil will be dis, dis, uh, dismantled. So John's using Old Testament uh, symbolism to paint a picture. The two, the two men are referred to as witnesses. 
In Old Testament law found in Deuteronomy 19.15, it took how many witnesses to convict somebody? At least two. Two or three, it says. One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Jesus agrees with this in John 8.17. He says so himself. Now, from their actions in John's vision, the two witnesses obviously represent Moses, the lawgiver, Elijah the prophet. Moses was given authority to turn water into, into blood. Remember that? Elijah was given authority to, to bring drought. He prayed, and drought was on the earth for three and a half years. He prayed again. The drought ended. He was also able to, uh, to cause fire to fall from heaven. So the picture is obvious who he's, he's talking about here. These two men represent the Old Testament law because Moses wrote, what, five books? The Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He wrote those. It's called the law. And the prophets was the rest of the books. The law and the prophets. This was the entire word of God that people possessed at this time. Two witnesses, the law and the prophets, represented by Moses and Elijah, Witnesses that convict all of us of our sin. The people in the Old Testament were convicted the same way we are of sin, and they are saved the same way that you and I are. In Luke 16, one of your favorite parables about the rich man and Lazarus. Jesus tells us the story of the rich man. From hell, the rich man is begging for Lazarus to be sent from heaven to tell his five remaining brothers how to miss this place of torment. And the rich man is told that if his, his brothers have Moses and the prophets, they have the law and the prophets. That, that's what they need to uh, obey and be saved. Oh, no, no. But if you'll send somebody back from the dead, then they'll listen and they'll be saved. All the time, people were asking Jesus to give them a sign. Give us a sign. Just give us a sign and we'll believe. He brought Lazarus, the other Lazarus, back from the dead. And still... Pharisees and people from Jerusalem came to a feast that was being thrown after Lazarus was, was raised from the dead. They're sitting there looking at a man who has been dead for four days, and what are they going? Oh, hallelujah. I'm, I'm a believer now. No, they're wanting to kill him again. You read the scriptures. A sign doesn't do it. Think about what a sign did for the Israelites. The Red Sea was parted, and this short time after that, what are they doing? Oh, we're thirsty. Oh, we're hungry. You brought us out here to die. Signs don't do it. The Lord knew that. Signs will give people a platform to preach the truth. But it's by the word of God that people are saved. It's by the word of God that people are converted. Amen? So the two witnesses have the same mission Jesus did and as we do while on the earth. They proclaim the truth of the word of God. They acted as sacrificial lambs. Remember Jesus told his followers in Luke 10, 3, Go! I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. When the witnesses are killed, their bodies litter the streets of Jerusalem, the city where their Lord was crucified, and the city is figuratively called Sodom because of its worldliness and wickedness. In this wicked world, certain people and organizations gloat and celebrate, even to this day, when Christians are dealt another setback. When Christians are dealt another setback in the judicial system or in their political arena, Radical Muslims celebrate the death of Christians. Oh, Allah's going to really love us now. Oh, we're going to get all these virgins when we get up into heaven. Oh, my goodness. Unbelievers literally consider the death of the truth of the word of God as good news. They feel their own depraved lifestyle has been vindicated because Christian values stand in their way. But the real truth of the matter is such people, listen, such people will never find lasting happiness or peace anywhere else. And they don't even know it. You can read that in Romans chapter 1. Read that whole chapter. Our creator God wired us to find our worth, to find our sweet spot, the gifts that he has given us, our purpose. He has wired us. To find it only in him and serving him and his loving commands. His plans for us are good. Jeremiah 20, 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you. They're not plans to harm you. This is for your good. To, to prosper you. I mean, how many of us have told our children that? You need to brush your teeth. I know you don't want to. But you'll thank me later. It's important that you go to school. You need to do your homework. 
eat a carrot once in a while. It's going to help you down the road. You'll be so glad. The Lord, all of his commands are given for our benefit. As I said earlier, the witnesses are supernaturally protected till their mission is done. Jesus told the witnesses, he, he sent them out into the world in Luke 9, 10, 19. I have given you authority. Listen, he said this, and people have misinterpreted this and tried to make it into something it's not. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions. In that day, those were symbols of evil within that society. We have a whole religion built on snake handling. That was never intended. That's not what the scripture intended. I will give you, the, you will be able to overcome the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. You will be supernaturally protected until your mission is accomplished. And I mentioned the other night, I said, how many of you have had near-death experiences? You're going, oh, but for the grace of God, I, I wouldn't be here. The Lord wasn't through with you yet. He spared you to do something with your life, to serve him. Paul was snake bit. Paul was shipwrecked. He was stoned, left for dead. He got up, and instead of going the opposite direction, what did he do? He went back to the very people who stoned him and tried to kill him. He was beaten, but he could not be killed until his mission was accomplished. While praying for his followers, shortly before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed this, My prayer is that you take them out of the world. No, don't take them out of the world. My prayer is that you protect them from the evil one. You and I were called to be salt and light until our time is done. He's not going to take us out of the fight. We are here for a purpose. He even prayed, deliver us from evil. You've prayed the prayer yourself. So the witnesses' ministry lasts three and a half years. It's followed by their death. And their resurrection, symbolically, it parallels that of the Lord's. Like Christ, they are raised to be vindicated before the world and taken to heaven in a cloud. All of us have been given a mission within the Great Commission to be witnesses. We're going to be opposed by Satan. Many are going to die for their faith. But we're going to be vindicated. Amen? We're going to be vindicated. We're going to be raised to live eternally. In verse 13, listen, there's a great earthquake symbolizing God's wrath. Remember whenever Jesus breathed his last on the cross, what happened? There was an earthquake. There was an earthquake. We read here, there's a great earthquake symbolizing God's wrath and judgment. A tenth of the city is destroyed. 7,000 people are killed. Listen, that's a horrible disaster, but it's still limited in scope. I don't want you to be confused and think I'm talking about that earthquake when Jesus died. No, at all. But in this, in this vision... It's a horrible disaster, but it's limited. And numerically, a symbol of God's perfect judgment. This can symbolize the, the approaching judgment on Jerusalem when it's destroyed in AD 70, as John is writing. It's destroyed by the Romans. It's judgment for collaborating with Rome and rejecting and killing Christ. God used the very nation they turned to aid them in rejecting his grace and to bring about their punishment. It was horrific. But it was a picture of what was still to come. Remember that shortly before he was crucified, Jesus looked out over the city of Jerusalem and what he said? Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets, you stone those who sent you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. And look, your house is left to you desolate. And annihilation was on its way. Mm. I'm looking at the clock. I really would like to finish up with the Antichrist tonight, but uh, I think I might have to push that off till tomorrow night because uh, I want to make sure we still are able to focus on what's being said. Great spiritual awakenings come and go. But Satan is not going to remain completely subdued. He will not. There's going to uh, continue to be many antichrists that rise. There have been many in the past. Uh, Nero, 
Caligula was definitely one. Uh, we look down through history, you can see many. Uh, we can look at Hitler. You stop and think about what he did. He rose to power, claiming that he was, you know, there. He, oh, I don't want any more. I don't want any more territory. And remember, Neville Chamberlain came back from a meeting with Hitler, and he held up the paper. It says, peace in our time. Hitler is promised, you know. And then what, what was Hitler's true intention? Take the world. One after another after another. The whole world was plunged into war. And people were saying back then, he's the Antichrist. And you know what? They were right. He was one. John chapter 2. You look at John chapter 2. He says, you've heard that the Antichrist is coming and indeed many have already come. Anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ is an Antichrist. And he, he said that again in, in the next chapter, in 1 John chapter 2. Or, uh, yeah, he said it again. Or in John chapter, 1 John 2, verse 7, he said it again. We shouldn't be distracted. I mean, I have people all the time asking, you think the Antichrist is alive? You think he's on the earth right now like he's the only one? And many times we get distracted looking for things and we're not about our master's business. I remember in the 70s, whenever there was, there people were talking about this person. Henry Kissinger. Oh, yeah, he was the Antichrist. You know, and then a little bit later on, uh, someone said, uh, oh, Mikhail Gorbachev. He's even got a mark on his head. Some of you who were alive back then remember that. And, of course, any number of people said, oh, the popes. The popes or, uh, you know, this pope or that pope. Uh, John says, anyone, anyone who does not believe this word of God or believe that, that God, Christ is God and the sole dispenser of the faith is an antichrist. There could be antichrist living people. There could be antichrist institutions. There could be antichrist governments. I'll talk more about that tomorrow night. But we shouldn't get so distracted looking for him or her. Satan would like that. I'm going to get them fighting over this or that, arguing over this or that, and that'll distract them from doing what they're supposed to be doing in the first place. He loves sowing confusion in the church. Up to 160,000 Christian men, women, and teenagers and children are suffering their, their own brutalization, tribulation, horrific deaths every year at the hands of the Muslims and communist regimes around the world. We, as American Christians, have been insulated from the majority of that. The majority. And as I said last night, there's hardly anybody in here who couldn't leave this place and drive through the McDonald's drive-thru if you wanted to on the way home and get yourself a snack, get yourself a meal, go to the grocery store and get a gallon of milk, a loaf of bread. We've seen nothing yet here. Nothing. That's not to say it's not coming. But we shouldn't be so distracted with thinking also, it's got to get bad. It has to get bad. There has to be a figure that rises up whenever people in these other countries have Antichrist figures killing them wholesale. Wholesale. In other parts of the world. But we as Americans, sometimes we get a little cocky. And we think if it's not happening to us, then it's not important. If it's not happening to us, it isn't time yet. And when did the Lord say the master would come? When everybody said peace and safety. When certain people were saying peace and safety, it says destruction will come. When we least expect it, many Americans are going to be caught off guard because they think it's going to happen. I think it needs to happen this way. I think it's going to happen this way. When it's already happening that way all around the world. And we are being insulated from a lot of it. It's just things to think about. Things to think about. I don't claim to be the authority. This is the authority. But you study this, and the Lord will open your eyes and show you many, many things. It says, he'll even show you things yet to come. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10. Read those. Brother Jared? 191. As we're looking at this hymn book, I want to share this with you. We're getting ready to sing an invitation. The man placed his weapon before the teenage girl's face, and he asked her, do you believe in God? Now that would be kind of scary, wouldn't it? And she paused for a moment, and she said, yes, I do. And he said, why? 
He didn't give her a chance to answer. She lay dead at his feet. Now, this could have happened in the Roman Colosseum. This could have happened in a communist country or a Muslim nation. But many of you already know, it happened at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado on April 20th, 1999. It's a true event. Do you believe in Jesus? Well, James said, that's good that you do. The demons believe and they tremble. You say you believe in God. How is it affecting your life? What are you doing about your belief? I hope and pray your belief, even here in the heartland of America, goes deeper than just lip service. Because someday, if not your very life, then your eternity is going to depend on it. If you would, bow your head with me. Listen, it's simple to be saved. The hard part is living for him every single day. And that's why the Lord gave us the church. Satan's attacking both families. He's attacking the earthly family. He's attacking the church family. Rendering both, trying to render both ineffective, trying to redefine what they are. To some degree, he is being successful as his power is increasing on the earth shortly before the Lord returns. But I'm going to show you how easy it is to be saved. And it's, listen, it's not words. It's an attitude of the heart. But just like the thief on the cross next to Jesus, when he observed the Lord, he started by cursing the Lord, just like his partner in crime did. But whenever he observed the Lord, he'd heard about him. When he saw how he was treating those who were killing him, those who were torturing him, crying out for forgiveness for them, for they know not what they do, he realized, oh my goodness, it's true. He is who he claims to be. And at that last moment before Jesus, shortly before Jesus died, he cried out, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And we pretty it up. Use your imagination with your eyes closed. We pretty it up. But the Lord pushed himself up. He has almost no blood left, no life left in his body. He's in, in unbelievable agony and spasms. And he pushes himself up and he turns and he looks at that thief. And he says, today, you. And he has to probably let himself back down and push himself back up again. You will be with me. Let himself down, push himself up one more time. Look him in the eyes and say, in paradise. That thief didn't have an opportunity to be baptized. But he's in glory. And those of us who know him are going to meet him that day. That day when we see him. Let me tell you, it's that simple to be saved. I encourage you to cry out right now in your heart if you're not certain. If there's the least little bit of doubt, Lord, remember me. I believe you are who you said you are. Come into my life. Help me to live for you. And give me a home in heaven when I die. Thank you for listening to this message from Woburn Baptist Church. For more information, please visit us at www.wilburnbaptistchurch.org or you can also like us on Facebook.